The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, I'm Darren Fonda, Managing Editor for Barron's. Welcome to Barron's Live, Managing Your Money. Today, we're talking to Paul Hickey, co-founder of Bespoke Investment Group, a research and investment management firm. Before founding Bespoke, Paul was a research analyst at Berigny Associates and worked at Salomon Smith Barney. He has an economics degree from the College of Holy Cross. Uh, thanks for being here, Paul. Hey, Darren. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. Great. So let's start out with uh, with kind of your overview of the macro climate, and then we'll dive into your outlook for stocks and sectors in 2024 and some areas that look attractive. Um, the market has been rallying for a few weeks now on bets that the Fed's rate hikes are over and that we'll see a few cuts in the first half of 2024. Bond yields have come down sharply, and that's been a nice tailwind for stocks, especially tech and other sectors with relatively high multiples. And you've written about uh, you've written that sort of prior um, easings of financial conditions have been great for stocks. Um, is that what we're likely to see now? Yeah. So, I mean, I think to start with that, to, to your most recent point there on the easing of financial conditions, what we've seen since the end of October is a massive easing of financial conditions. And that's a reversal of mostly what we saw from the July highs till late October, where conditions tightened. And when you've seen historically such a rapid uh, reversal of that tightening to easing conditions like we've seen, it's been very conducive to market gains um, going forward. Uh, when we looked, there were only nine other periods since 1982 when we saw financial conditions ease by as much over a two-week span as they did in the first half of November. And following each of those periods, uh, shorter term return, like say over the next one to three months were mixed, but still with a you know very positive bias. Over the next uh, year, the S&P was higher every single time and the median gain was 20%. So it's pretty convincing um, trends there that uh, you, you tend to see. It's a sign of um, you know strong uh, or a reversal in the market. And what, what are the financial conditions that you're looking at that are using? Is it, I mean, bond yields have come down. Is that primarily it? Because rates well, are still fairly high. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, it's a it's the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index. So uh, what that's con it's looking at um, uh, the dollar. It's looking at interest rates and and other credit conditions in the market. So it's an amalgamation of all the, of several different uh, indicators. But to your point, it's a reflection of the lower rates that we've seen and the weaker dollar. And that goes to another point where what we what we saw from the end of July through the end of October was we as the market pulled back, we saw bond yields rise, we saw the dollar rally, and we saw oil rally. Since then, we've seen that three-headed monster, so to speak, um, you know, get slayed. And we've seen 
uh, crude oil dropped 8%, the dollar declined 3%. And then we've seen um, interest rates, the 10-year yields down over 60 basis points since then. So we've seen a, a big um, a big reversal in, in, in those conditions. And that has helped the market to feel better and and rebound from what was a correction from the summer highs. So it almost looks like we're uh, heading into like the Goldilocks scenario where you have like moderating economic growth, you have an easing of financial conditions, you have corporate profits that are holding up reasonably well. I suppose the big question is, um, will this continue into 2024? Uh, You know, the market um, seems to be convinced that the Fed will cut uh, rates a few times, um, maybe in the first half of the year. Um, But if the Fed does that, it would be probably because uh, there would be more signs that inflation is is really down to the Fed's 2% target in the CPI um, and or that a recession is here or coming soon. Um, And while that may be great for cutting rates, it would put pressure on corporate profits, consumer spending. Um, it would likely be negative for housing unless rates come down pretty sharply and mortgages come down. So it's, it's kind of a weird scenario where it's the bad news, good news kind of thing. Um, but can stocks continue to rally if that's the scenario that plays out? Yeah, I mean, it's it's has there anything been normal about the last three years is is the way we look at it here just because everything has just been so you know thrown upside down in the way the economic cycle has has played out uh but to your original point about the fed cutting rates i I don't necessarily think that the fed has to cut rates in order for the rally to keep going but um even just recent comments from fed governor waller uh talking about that if inflation continues to follow this path, it could set the stage for um, an easing of interest rates just because we are at restrictive rates. So you don't necessarily have to see a recession um, in order for rates to get cut here. But again, we've gone from, it's it's be careful what you wish for, because we've gone from uh, a the last several months where the market has rallied on bad economic news and and sold off on good economic news. But now that the backdrop of the Fed has shifted to more of certainty that they're done hiking rates, we're going to see that that pendulum shift with the market reacting to economic data where good news will be good news for the market and bad news, though, will be bad news for the market. And what that brings up to this point is, We've seen um, some economic data start to come in um, relative to expectations uh, on with a weaker bias. So we, it's a matter of how far is that going to go. Um, we've tended to see, you know, the, we've seen a slackening of the labor market, but it, it's from levels that were extremely tight. Uh, so you look at the consumer confidence report today. There's an index where they track um, whether jobs are hard to get. And so today, that in the, today's release for which was for uh, the month of November, you saw that index rise to its highest level in over two years. Which okay, that's a headline that sounds concerning. But then when you look at that headline and you dig beneath the surface, there it's still well below its historical average reading. So we're 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 just coming off the boil, so to speak, and not 
really starting to freeze. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, the market has gone from predicting um, a recession uh, in late 2023, early 2024, to now expecting a soft landing or even a no landing scenario where the economy just kind of keeps percolating along maybe at two to 3% growth. And we don't even get into that negative um, growth scenario. Is that your view um, as well? So, yeah, so it, it's, a, it's, it's a great question because like you said, there's been, there's been a near, there was a near certainty that there we were going to head into a recession, uh, you know, at, at this point earlier in the year and late last year. And then you've started to see the economy hold up. And now everybody, the consensus is that we're going to avoid a recession. So our overall view at this point is when we look at the whole compilation of different factors regarding the economy and the markets is that we will avoid a recession. Um, that's that, you know, that's that could change uh, based on how conditions evolve. But the fact is, is there are I mean, there's no uh, uniform data pointing in one direction saying we're definitely not going to have a recession or we definitely will have a recession. So there's I could point to plenty of data points right now that's that say that the economy um, that would signal a recession. And the one that everybody focuses on is the yield curve. And the yield curve has been inverted for you know over a year. It's a record length of, and when I'm talking about the yield curve, I'm talking about the spread between the 10-year treasury and the three-month treasury. And that has been inverted for a record amount of time. And then what we're, which should say a recession is in the cards. Now, what people, the response is that, well, we haven't gotten a recession yet. So the yield curve doesn't matter this time. Um, the the caveat to that, though, is when the yield curve does invert, it usually takes 18 months or more before a recession starts. So we're still in the, we're still in that window where a recession could come and it would be perfectly normal in terms of the duration from when the curve first inverted to the time uh, that a recession started. So why why are we less concerned this time around? Well, uh, one caveat is that we've seen the curve inverting as um, longer term interest rates have been going up. And that's not that tends to not be a trend you see um, during past economic cycles. But at the same time, we have a number of other indicators that suggest that, um, you know, we have more indicators suggesting to us that a recession is less likely than likely. And then one last item I would say is that maybe, you know, we have already had our recession uh, for as long as most people can remember a recession was two quarters of negative GDP growth. And that's exactly what we had in the first half of 2022. Um, you know, there are other factors, the NBER, which officially, you know, says whether or not we're in a recession has, you know, other factors that they take into account. But the general technical definition of a recession was two negative quarters of GDP growth. And that's when we saw Germany with two negative quarters um, earlier in the year. That was referred to as a recession. Uh, so it's it's a little bit of semantics at this point. But we did see a significant slowing in the economy in the first half of 2022. All right. Well, there's still uh, kind of reading tea leaves to figure out um, what's going to happen over the next year. And the farther out you get, the harder it gets. 
Um, I would like to just remind the audience to please um, submit some questions and, um, and we'll take a few um, in a few minutes. Uh, let's talk about um, the kind of elephant in the room for the stock market, which is AI um, and the Magnificent Seven. So, uh, you know, AI is uh, the biggest tech trend that we've seen in perhaps a generation. Um, it has powered um, NVIDIA, Microsoft, um, to tremendous highs. It's also uh, at least partly responsible for an uptrend in tech more broadly, where you're seeing Amazon, Google, Tesla, and Meta all performing spectacularly well this year. And the concentration of those stocks in the market and their gains has basically been responsible for almost the entire performance of the S&P 500 this year, with the rest of the 493 stocks not doing very much which raises the question of where do we go from here? And is this all a giant bubble that is going to burst when AI turns out not to be the greatest thing since sliced bread? What do you think about that? Uh, yeah, so that, that, there's a lot to unpack there. But um, I think to your point, this has been a rally led by the mega of the mega cap stocks. We've seen, um, like you said, the Magnificent Seven account for just about all of the gains in the market this year. Uh, and then that the, the, the counter to that is that valuations in the market are relatively rich right now. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when you, but that is also a function of the fact that you have these mega cap stocks at high valuations. So the 10 largest stocks in the S&P 500 uh, trade for anywhere between eight in 60 times next year's earnings. And as a little sidebar there, uh, what's interesting about those 10 largest stocks and the valuations, uh, Eli Lilly, which has nothing to do with AI, trades at 50 times earnings. So that's one of the most expensive stocks in the market right now, and it has nothing to do with uh, technology. And, and that's because and that's because of the obesity drugs, right? Yes, exactly, which, um, which are, have which are giving AI a run for their money is the greatest thing since slice of bread or a loaf of bread, uh, if you can use Wagovi. But um, the, the thing is, though, so with that said, the median multiple of those 10 largest stocks is uh, 27 times earnings, which is very rich. Market trades for, you know, let's say 20 times earnings. But if you take out those 10 stocks, the rest of the S&P, the median multiple is 16 times earnings. And that's very reasonable um, in our eyes for the market. And you can, when you go further down the market cap space, it's even looks things look even more attractive. So the Russell 2000, which is the traditional benchmark for small caps, that has, that trades for uh, I think over 20 times earnings last I looked, which sounds expensive. But there's a ton of companies in the Russell 2000 that. Have, are not profitable, have never been profitable, and have no prospects of being profitable. So when you focus and drill down more into, say, the S&P 600, which is another small cap index, which has more stringent criteria than simply market cap, and takes into account earnings prospects, and if the companies have earnings, that trades for under 13 times earnings um, on a median basis, or uh, the overall index trades for under 13 times earnings. So again, that even looks more uh, attractive when you think about it. So it doesn't necessarily seem to us like a bubble. Sure, those mega cap stocks trade for 
lofty valuations. But even there, there's stocks like Alphabet, which trade for 19 times earnings, and a Tesla, which trades for about 60 times earnings. So there's a wide variety in the multiples of those 10 stocks, but collectively they are, you know, richly valued and contribute to the exit to the rich valuation of the broader market. But then when you look at an individual stock basis, uh, things don't look as uh, rich and which goes to show how important stock picking for individual investors is going to be in the uh, year ahead or and years ahead, so to speak. So would this make a case for small caps or like, um, you know, higher quality small caps like the S&P 600, which I think one of the criteria is four quarters of profitability for a company to make it into that index or and or an equal weighted um, approach or strategy for the S&P 500. So you don't have as much exposure to the richly valued Magnificent Seven. Yeah, I think those are all um, approaches you, you could take. Um, the fact is they you want to put a little bit less emphasis on on some of these mega cap stocks and if you think about it this way so if you if you had apple and microsoft each pull back from the prices they're trading at today and they each pulled back to their 50 day moving average which is just a you know a run of the mill pullback um, it's not even considered a correction it would just be considered you know reverting to the mean um, a, mo a modest uh, pullback within an uptrend. The market cap that would equate to in those two stocks would be equal to more than 15% of the Russell 2000's entire market cap. So it doesn't necessarily take a lot of much declines because both Microsoft and Apple have bigger market caps on an individual basis than the Russell 2000. So it doesn't take much of an outflow from these bigger stocks in to smaller caps to have a outsized impact on the Russell 2000 or the S&P 600. So uh, you get a lot of juice um, if you do see some sort of um, sector rotation or asset reallocation into small caps. Okay, well, let's talk about sectors a little bit. Um, what are some of the sectors that you like now and which ones do you think are uh, not looking particularly attractive? All right. So just from a broader perspective, I, I think when you look at what has happened in the Middle East since um, over the last two months and the fact that oil prices are down, um, even in the, you know, well, the, even shortly after the, the war started over there, oil prices had already pulled back. That suggests to us that there's a decent amount of supply on the markets in the energy sector and that despite, um, you know, relatively low valuations uh there's you know the market isn't very um enamored with the prospects um for energy going forward here so energy probably isn't one of our favorite uh sectors here and then on the positive side within the technology sector uh small cap technology uh trades at a a, a very large discount to uh large cap technology. So uh, the S&P 500 large cap tech trades at over a 40% premium to the small cap technology. Uh, and then another sector communication services or I mean, consumer discretionary, I mean, trades at a, more than a 50% premium um, in the large cap space to the small cap space. So 
when you look at those uh, two sectors, we would favor the smaller side of the of the ledger. And then industrials, what we're seeing with the industrial sector uh, is the they traded a big premium to their large cap peers. And if we're going to see this trend of onshoring um, in the U.S., I think that would bode well for the for smaller cap industrials, which tend to be more leveraged to uh the U.S. economy as opposed to the global economy. So small cap tech and small cap industrials, and are there ETFs for those sectors? Uh, I don't have the tickers offhand, but from my experience, there's a, there's an ETF for everything these days. So, um, I, you know, I, there, there probably is. Um, and then, uh, you know, even if there wasn't, I, you know, just to our point earlier in the conversation, focusing more on on an equal weight strategy. So just getting more exposure, if you had to do the smaller cap names in um, within the S&P 500, because when you, even in the large cap space, the smaller stocks in those indices tend to have uh, lower valuations than their, you know, than the biggest stocks in, in each uh, yeah. index. Okay, let's, let's talk a little bit about housing. Um, it has been um, hit, pretty hard in terms of sales uh, because mortgage rates for 30 years have been over 7%. Um, maybe they've been easing a little bit now, but um, the problem is affordability and the problem is prices haven't come down um, at all um, in most cases. Uh, this has been a big problem for household formation. It's a big problem for um, just the housing sector in general and all of the um, associated industries with it. And, and um, what, what is your view on housing and the, particularly the home builder sector? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the home builder sector, they had a big rally uh, since last June when they pulled back sharply. Uh, this was June, 2022, and they were trading at attractive valuations, but they've had a big run over. I mean, they were one of the best from late June through early June of this year, they were one of the best performing groups in the overall market. So um, it, you know they they've run up a lot. It, it they're even in the short term they as rates have pulled back this month they're they've become they've gotten a little bit of ahead of themselves we think. So um, you know it I think that it, we're we're not really involved in that space at this point just because uh, there's prices have stayed relatively high but that's because there's been a lack of supply um, and it, if you do start to see some. Uh, movement in in the housing sector at, in terms of people selling and 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 starting to move, you may see price prices are going to have to give, and uh, that could be a problem for the home builders. But overall, it's just an area we're, we're just um, you know indifferent on at this point. All right, um, one of the questions that we got is from Brian, um, who asks uh, utilities and REITs um, are they going to have a comeback? They've really been hit hard. Um, I think if you do see uh, rates uh, start to ease here, uh, that's going to be good for uh, be for for the both sectors. I think um, real estate has been hit very hard. Uh, the REITs, so specifically, and uh, sentiment is is very negative towards the sector. Um, so I think a lot of the weakness is priced in uh, to the sector at this point. I would say. Uh, but, you know, overall, uh, you, we tend to focus more on uh, growth. And so we just don't uh, have a lot of um, 
you know, focus on either of those two sectors. And you don't think that they'll get a, a, a more of a tailwind in 2024 as rates come down? No. So I, I yeah, so I think the lower rate environment would certainly be a benefit to them uh, and would help if, if we do see rates lower. But like we were just talking before, um, we've, we, the Fed doesn't necessarily have to cut rates. And at the long end of the curve, um, what they do at the short end isn't going to have, um, you know, the long end could have its own movements there. But if rates do decline um, in 2024, uh, we would expect uh, at the long end of the curve, those two sectors would uh, benefit greatly, I think. Yeah. I mean, you can get some nice dividends uh, right now in REITs uh, and utilities, and they're somewhat defensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, that may not be enough to um, push their overall total returns um, above the market averages without some macro um, tailwinds. If you have positive and if you have a positive outlook on, say, the broader market um, in 2024, uh Defensive sectors usually are not the best area to um, to to try and have to be overweight. And, yeah, you, you you said that you favor growth, um, but growth is often associated with tech, and that kind of brings us back to big tech and mega cap tech. Where else would you be looking for growth? So, I mean, I think as far as um, you know, better economic prospects, companies that are lev- that are everything. So, AI is. is is going to, you know, there's computing power. It's going to take a lot of, and the whole trend of electric vehicles, the, the U.S. grid is in terrible shape. And I think um, in the Northeast, uh, you tend to have very unreliable um, power sources during uh, bad weather. And there's several companies that are focused on, you know, rebuilding uh, their industrial companies that are focused on rebuilding and refortifying and and improving the status of the grid. And if we're going to see uh, this long awaited tr- uh, movement to all EVs, and if we're going to be needing all this computing power for AI enabled applications, we're going to need a reliable grid and we're going to need reliable power sources. So those are companies in the industrial sector where you could see growth. Um, so it's, again, it's not just tech. Uh, hey, Paul, so, so Paul, what are some examples of those companies? So one, one name we like is Generac where it, it's, um, you know, home power uh, generators. You're in an environment where work from home now is uh, becoming much more uh, ubiquitous among the U.S. workforce. And if you're going to be working from home, you you, you want a reliable source of power. You want re- and internet as well, but you you want reliable power, and uh, you you're, you can't afford not to have a um, downtime in your your electricity service. And what we look, we the way we think of Generac is we compare it to and like home backup power is so like what air conditioning was in the 60s and 70s, where there were you know it, only a few only a few of your neighbors may have had it, um, but then as the years go on, more and more people have it. And I think Generac is a company that had an enormous run during the uh, COVID rally and then just came crashing back down to earth. Um, in the years since, it's still well off its highs uh, because they they built up inventories. Uh, consumers had it was a housing play. It was consumers having excess money to 
to buy these generators or big ticket items. But I, I think over the longer term, it's going to be not necessarily a nice to have, but a need to have. So a Generac is one name that we would um, that that we think from a longer term perspective uh, looks very attractive. Well, Paul, we only have a few minutes left, and I wanted to go through some other um, questions um, and look at some other sectors. So Robert asks, and let's try to do this somewhat quickly. Um, mm -hmm. Robert asks, what is your outlook for bank stocks? So I think bank stocks in a lower rate environment would uh, would benefit greatly. Uh, some of the large cap banks um, have very good yields. They trade at attractive valuations. Uh, so in an environment where if we're going to have uh, lower uh, Fed rates in the year ahead, I, I think that would be a big positive for the bank stocks. All right. And um, Ron asks, um, what about Brazil and Saudi Arabia for investing now, um, which raises the question of uh, uh, international markets in general? So I think on an international basis, Saudi Arabia, I, I don't have too much, um, you know, I don't know much about uh, as far as we, we don't cover that very often. But Latin American uh, equities, I think, look attractive here. The we're, you're going to see if you're seeing this onshoring trend of moving uh, production out of China, one area in closer to the U.S., you look at Mexico, you look at South America, uh, they're already cutting rates there so that they're into their easing cycle. So that should be a benefit for equity markets in Brazil and other regions in South America that are cutting rates. All right. Um, and Steve asks, do you have thoughts on gold and natural gas? So natural gas has been, the weather hasn't been very friendly for natural gas in, in that we haven't had a lot of cold weather. Um, so that's um, been an issue and that'll just, uh, a lot will be depend on the weather. Very longer term LNG supplies, uh, that could be a positive for natural gas. Gold, I think from a technical perspective, it's had a um, a good run from a chart perspective. It looks like it's breaking out here. Uh, but then at the same time, you're seeing what we just saw and we're about to see in gold is what's called a golden cross where the 50 day crosses up through the 200 day moving average. It, it, golden crosses by technicians are typically considered positive. But when you look back over history, when gold has seen a golden cross, it's been more of fool's gold and, and it hasn't been the best performance going forward. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for being here, Paul. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow. Market Watch Deputy Enterprise Editor Jillian Berman will speak with financial aid expert Mark Kantrowitz about recent changes to the financial aid process and how they'll impact college costs. Thank you for listening. Stay well and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.